Hello, and welcome to the History in Today podcast. This week, Katie and I sat down with guest Nick Ayaspara, and the three of us talked about how society perceives women from the beginnings of the 20th century into the modern day. We look at ads, talk politics, and more. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get into it. Okay, so um, do you guys want to start off the conversation on uh, the beginning of this? Go ahead, Nick. You're our guest. Okay, so starting off with the women's suffrage movement, this start for this um, modern push of feminism and these modern ways of women's rights. We have, of course, the suffragettes who are some of the most inspirational people to me, in my opinion, like people like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. These women, I think, really stick out as like the first most prominent women, in my opinion, um, in America about this push for women's rights, this push for this idea that women should have equality. And of course, they looked at things, especially from the idea of voting rights and that women need a voice in government because there's no way change can happen without that woman's voice because they didn't want men dictating their lives anymore. They wanted women to push for their um, rights and their um, lifestyle. So that leads to this idea of the 19th Amendment passing um, after years and years of pushing for different laws to pass. And of course, it's not as simple as just, well, it passed. But, um, you know, the 19th Amendment, when it passed in 1920, this is the centennial, um, it stated the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And that was something that was really important because prior to this, like I said, women didn't have that voice. They didn't have a say in government at all. No matter who they were, no matter what social class, they always worked behind the scenes, really. So it really just brought that first wave into the picture, which started that first wave of more like liberalism and feminism. And it's really just evident between like how everything happened with the women's suffrage movement, in my opinion. I, like, I hate to tie it to today so quickly, um, but I don't know if you saw Nick, but I know, Sam, you and I were talking about it at some point. Um, we were talking about how Susan B. Anthony was pardoned for being arrested during um, her, you know, championing um, of, you know, women's suffrage and you know you sent that to me and i was like why is this relevant right now like why is she, why is she being pardoned number one when she's not alive anymore like and and i don't know if we want to like quickly talk about that or if that's like getting too off topic where we can talk about it later but you know just just sort of popping that in there like the fact that this was talked about on you know the 100 year anniversary and you know she's being pardoned when she's not even alive i just thought that was really weird I think we can talk about that now. I think it's it's just kind of crazy when you see the list of people that were pardoned, obviously by President Trump. Uh, and it's just like, you know, criminal, 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 criminal. Susan B. Anthony. And it's like, oh, okay, I didn't realize that we were doing that. And it's kind of sad because, like, you know that the reason that he, she's being pardoned at this point is, is not for, you know, a good reason. It's probably just, you know, to kind of use the name recognition that, oh, I'm doing something good. Uh, yeah, just, it's just frustrating. It's frustrating and it's just so weird. I, I, I honestly don't think that it, it does much to 
it does much of anything, but it also doesn't do much to strengthen her legacy at all. It's like, it's almost like a reminder, like, oh, like, she was arrested. Like, she, you know, like, it doesn't bring out, like, any positive characteristics. I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know if you heard about it, Nick, um, but, yeah, definitely if you did, like, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I did hear a little bit about that, and I, I definitely agree with both of what you're saying. I, I definitely think it's an interesting point that a hundred years later, after the amendment passes, that... Unfortunately, you know, Susan B. Anthony wasn't even alive to see the amendment ever pass. Um, but I think it's crazy how this is the time to pardon her. But I think, obviously, like Sam had mentioned, it was obviously a way to try to be like, oh, gain some recognition. Like, I did something good. I pardoned somebody who deserved it. But I mm -hmm. think, like what you said, Katie, I agree that it definitely takes away a lot of what she did and her legacy because her being arrested proved she would do anything for women to get the right to vote. She stood up against the law to try to create a law. <laughs> so I find pardoning her almost like a slap in the face in a way of like, now what she did was legal, making it like there was making it almost like women always had like that place, like they always had a voice when that wasn't the case at all, which is why she did what she did. So I think it's almost like a slap in the face to her legacy, at least in my opinion. I agree with that. I also think that like kind of the perception of like the women's suffrage movement in, in or at least the first women's suffrage movement before it was passed and everything. Um, I think it, it's kind of interesting because I don't think we talk about the the more aggressive, more, you know, pushing the envelope things that they did. We talk, you know, we kind of all are given this, um, not to quote a fictional movie. I mean, yes, to quote a fictional movie because I loved it when I was younger. But like, I feel like we all kind of have a little bit of a Mary Poppins votes for women idea of like what they were, like what the women's suffrage movement was about. And like, obviously on that, on that side of the pond, you know, they were probably even more, more, you know, aggressive. Obviously, you know, they had bombings and one, Emmeline Pankhurst actually took her own life to prove a point. But, like, I feel like there's a specific reason in how we talk about women's suffrage a hundred years later. And it's, it, it is, as you said, Nick, to kind of take away from the actual power that they have. Yeah. So, so sort of connecting, you know, this idea, you know, of suffrage being that, you know, first, like, major step, like, first major step, first major milestone um, of, of women gaining rights, it's important to recognize as well that, you know, it's very much taught at, as, like, a, all women got the right to vote when that wasn't the case at all, like, we... We often forget that the, the main population that this affected was white women and, and women of color, and women in the BIPOC community. Obviously, it wasn't referred to as the BIPOC community then, um, but using, you know, today's modern terms, um, it didn't apply to women in the BIPOC community at all. Um, and that's sort of, you know, where I think, not not getting like too off topic, but like this may be able to like connect to what we're going to be talking about with the layers of you know conservatism that we see like throughout American history. Um, but moving forward, we you know see 
in that like last um and we can talk about this like more later um we see like in that last wave of conservatism in the 80s we see this push toward intersectionality in particular Kim kimberly crenshaw you know coined the term um keeping in mind that that women of color you know experience much more disparity than white women and like adding like the layers of you know identity that you know sort of the suffrage movement and the the lack of application to everyone like all women sort of i think you know springboarded um or propelled So with the suffrage movement, um, you know, 1920, we have kind of the first step, as you said, which is, you know, this idea that obviously all women got the right, got the right to vote, but we know now that it really was, you know, targeted towards one specific group of women. But that's like the first milestone of, of progress. And, you know, obviously, I think people kind of, you know, obviously, I think there are a lot of people in this country that see that unfortunately even to this day as that's all the progress we needed um and we started to see that right away after you know, the, the 20s was you know as we were talking about before the show was was a conservative decade but obviously like before that was also conservative so it's not really appropriate to refer to it specifically as a wave but after that you know you have a good amount of you know progressive thought thinking about that, which brings us to World War II, where, um, Nick, did you want to talk about uh, how perception of women uh, changed during that period? Yeah, um, so women in World War II, for example, were viewed a lot different than women just 20 years prior, even with the suffrage movement, because women had changed, well, first of all, their look, um, for example, like back then it was about long hair, long dresses, that changed, especially in the 1920s, to short hair, shorter dresses, things like that. But um, World War II really brought this wave of, well, the men are gone, so who's left to take on the jobs at home? Who's left to work in the factories? Who's left? And then, oh, well, the women are left. So it really changed this idea that women have this empowerment and women have the ability to do these jobs that were always traditional male jobs, like mechanics and like stuff like working with their hands would work all things like that these were not traditional female jobs in any sense but it proves right there that in world war ii in the time of crisis women stepped up and women took that role on and they became really like the home front they became what helped america keep strength they became the people who worked on the farms they became the people who worked in the factories built the artillery for the um military to be able to help win the war in Europe and in the Pacific. So I think it just really shows how in the, in the 1920s, for example, it's this idea of conservatism and same with prior to that. And then you get into the 30s with the depression and stuff and how all of a sudden, um, by the 1940s, when you get into the war, you get this new perspective of, well, women can do so much more than just sit back and be their husband's little companion. They can be their own independent person. They can do a lot and from anything. And they took over, over entertainment too. Like we all know like the movies, like a league of their own. So like that, like with women's baseball, for example. And I think that just shows right there even that. And that lasted till like around 1952, I believe, the, base, the women's baseball league. So it just shows right there um, 
how these women really changed the way people looked at them. And it's evident even in posters like Rosie the Riveter, we can do it. She was like a strong woman, like showing off her muscles. Like we have this strength, we have this power to win this war. And it was really the women who helped do that on the American home front. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, the, the role of women, uh, you know, really exploding during World War II is, is really important to talk about. It's, you know, it's really cool that, you know, that happened, but it's also kind of sad that, you know, we had to have a world war to get women to be more respected. Like it, it really is, you know, looking at all these stats, it's like it, all of this should just be a no-brainer, but it isn't. And that's the really sad part. But moving in, moving into the next decade, uh, it gets even sadder because what had become kind of forced into societal norms by World War II, uh, they decided, oh yeah, we don't like that. So the men come home and all of a sudden they all want their jobs back. And, you know, I feel like this is kind of a, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but this might, this is kind of a, a a trend with just the the right in general of getting mad that people who didn't originally have their jobs took their jobs. Um, you know, now we see it more with immigrants than women, but obviously at this point, you know, there are still a lot of immigrants coming in in the 50s, <laughs> but um, uh, a lot of European immigrants that were more, more accepted because gotta love racism. But, um, um, at this point, you know, the, the women who have taken over the jobs and done very, very competent, you know, done, you know, just as well as the people that had them before are now working and then they have to decide who has the jobs. And because of this, you know, at the end of the war, you see the picture of the man, you know, scooping up his girl and kissing her, you know, the war is over. Um, we go back to that as the picture. We go back to, you know, the man is in one position in the relationship and the woman is in another position in the relationship. And um, I think that the best way to talk about this is to actually point to the ads that Nick provided. Uh, do you want to talk about them a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a couple of different ads and these ads are everywhere. You can, you can find them quite easily. Um, but there's many ads that really just show this idea of well, the 1950s comes as well as a wave of conservatism. So it's time to push women back to their traditional role. And that's something very sad to say because these ads, just looking at them are so disheartening. So you got one of them, for example, of a woman with a ketchup bottle showing like her face like in shock. And the ad says, you mean a woman can open it? Like, it's like a woman can't open a ketchup bottle. like. What are you talking about? Like what? Like there's men who can't even open a ketchup bottle. Like if it's stuck, you know, you bang it on the countertop. Like that's that's not something um, inventive at all. So I find that quite disturbing. And on that note, there's another ad provided by Hardee's, which is a type of fast food restaurant, um, known as Carl's Jr. out on the West Coast. <laughs> um, but this ad it says women don't leave the kitchen. We all know a woman's place is in the home, cooking a man a delicious meal. But if you are still enjoying the bachelor's life and don't have a little miss waiting on you, then come down to Hardy's for something sloppy and hastily prepared. And just whole paragraph. Oof. It's, it's so disgusting to see these types of ads because number one, like 
we we've sort of acknowledged that that world world war two you know enables women to step up to these roles that they wouldn't typically step up to because men were gone and it's it's to me it's infuriating to think about the only opportunity that women were able to like give themselves was because they were forced into it because men were gone it was the absence of men that like allowed them to thrive like they couldn't thrive alongside men because that would be like perceived as a threat so that's really the reason why all of these ads and this wave of conservatism came back because men didn't men weren't willing at that time to see women as their equals and to thrive alongside women, they were seen as, you know, as Sam mentioned earlier, an opportunity for their jobs to be like taken away. And it's and it's not even like with these ads, it's very much in the media too, with with shows such as I Love Lucy that, you know, really promote the this image of like the domestic American, you know, American dream. I'm saying that in like huge air quotes. Um and and just like this domesticated image of what you know a family <laughs> should be and you know to, to that point nick it's it's just even more disheartening to see that the only time that women could get that recognition was when men weren't there and then when men come back they're severely pushed to to this right conservative ideal of well you just need to go back to what the status quo was because we're not ready to accept this this reality that you could do what we did, you know. Absolutely. And then, so after the fifties, you know, that's kind of it's it's. I think it's more than the fifties. I think you know it really started after the war ended, so the end of the forties into kind of the, even the early sixties, and then obviously the sixties are you know very well known decade radical thought. You know all this kind of stuff you know free love and you get more you know progress again we get another another wave of progress and then that goes until you guys say the mid to late 70s yeah i'd say roughly about that point yes mid to late 70s you know you have the rise of the reagan the reagan right which is more of a socially conservative republican you know i don't think nixon was like you know I don't think Nixon was a saint, but I also don't think he was, he had the same opinions on social conservatism that you would see with Reagan and then his successors, um, which eventually would lead up to the current president that we have. But um, I think, you know, in the 80s, you see another big wave of conservatism. And the last um, 50s ad that we didn't talk about kind of segues into it well, I think. Where it's a, it's a, it's an ad. And all of these ads are going to be uh, in a post on the uh, the Instagram page we have at History and Today Pod. Um, so this ad is a picture of this is, in my opinion, probably the most disgusting of the three we've talked about so far. Where a man is sitting in bed, um, being served, what looks like breakfast by his wife, who is kneeling down next to him. Uh, and it just says, show her it's a man's world, and it's a tie ad, which, <laughs> first of all, this ad has nothing to do with ties. Uh, it's a little bit of, like, actually, more than a little bit, some, some sexual undertones. Um, and I think that kind of segues into more disgusting ads that we see in the 80s. 
uh, which you guys want to talk about those? You go yeah. ahead, Nick. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, as Sam was saying, when we get to the 1980s, it moves more into this idea of like sexualization of women as their kind of role. Um, and it moves into ads like this one we see, it says, keep her where she belongs. And you see a nude woman on the ground. Of course, she's covering herself up with her arm, but you see her on the ground staring at like this like heeled shoe, basically. It's not like a stiletto, but it's like a wedge more. And it's just kind of disturbing because I don't even know what's an ad for, I think for the shoe, but like, it just, it's just this huge sexualized ad. And then you got one, another one says two bites are better than one, where it shows this man with these two women, like trying to like bite his neck to promote computers at the time. And I think that's so just disgusting to see, like you can advertise with a computer, like sexually like that, like, showing these women to entice men to buy these computers like oh women will love you if you buy this computer like is that what the ad's trying to say because to me it's very confusing and just overall sexist yeah this makes you uncomfortable and then the last one which is marketed to women which is kind of different but similar kind of argument is uh palm olive bar you're prettier than you think you are you can prove it with a palm olive bar and again you know this this idea of you know trying to kind of concentrate women's value and worth into just appearance which is it's sad because all of these ads that we're talking about none of them are actually selling the product like all of them are selling the the ideal of of social conservatism and they just kind of put a logo in the corner and they're like, oh yeah, this is the product that we're going to sell with this ad. And that's just, it's disgusting because, you know, this isn't like ancient history. This is within the last 50 years. Yeah, to that sort of, you know, point, I don't want to jump ahead too much, um, but I think we do see today that there is still some, like, sexualization of women in the media, but... I think that what combats that sort of image is there's a there's a huge flow of women's empowerment alongside that like this idea so I, I hate to like jump ahead like a lot but you know we know that you know Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion released their their song WAP this year and there we see like even like comedians like Ben Shapiro like they're they're judging this this work of women saying that you know it's it's overly sexualized but it was created by women number one it was created by women and we don't see that same critique of like overly sexualized like portrayals of women when it's created by men like like and i'm saying that in the context of like the right and conservative ideals like it's okay when it's coming from men but when women are trying to empower other women and they're like using you know their sexuality to you know like empower themselves it's it's sort of frowned upon um and so like the 80s definitely marks like that this was created by men like either targeted toward other men or you know in that like in the rare cases as you mentioned sam like targeted to women um but you know this idea that it's created by men and men are controlling this narrative of you know how women should look and how they should act 
Um, so I think that while that sort of still exists today, like what counteracts it is this idea that there are more women controlling that that narrative um, than men. So like we sort of see this trend still exist, but it's it's now more women are controlling the narrative and really, you know, empowering. They're using their voice to empower other women, which I think is, you know, a benefit at least. While it does still exist in the media, that is one benefit of, you know. I think the difference between, and I think this, you know, what you said, this definitely like adds to it. Um, the difference between what we see in the 50s and the 80s, where you have this huge wave of conservatism and then another huge wave of conservatism, is that that conservatism, as you said, it definitely still exists, but it's not the majority anymore. And it's not going to be the majority. And because of that, you do see kind of combative, you know, combative media coming from the other side, which is, you know, the WAPs of the world. Uh, and obviously that's not the only instance of that. There, there's a lot of a lot of media, not just media, but also, you know, any kind of just outwardly pushed uh, word statement, really. But I think it's, it's really sad because, you know, there are, you know, we talk about history and today on this, on this podcast, and I think there are a lot of people today uh, on the right that specifically are clinging to that history because it is that history for them is comfort. That history for them is, you know, this is how I believe the world should be. And, you know, for some sick reason that they believe that they could not live in a world where there is equality. <laughs> Yeah, that's very much true. I, I think that, you know, something that was very prominent that we saw in the vice presidential debates um, between Mike Pence and Kamala Harris was, you know, Mike, Mike Pence, like, interrupted Kamala and she was like, excuse me, Mr. President, like, I'm speaking. Or she said something along, like, those lines. And it's very much a, we see that, that there is this, there is this attitude that still exists where it's, you know, my voice is more important because I'm a man. And it's not explicitly, it's not explicitly conveyed, but it's like a lot of undertones. And I think that, you know, something that I don't know is is also different about the movements today is I feel like it's very much behind the scenes, like little by little happens and it chips away at the progress we've made. And it's not as overt, I don't think, as the movements in, you know, say the 50s or even the 80s. Um, you know, we see that, you know, this I mean, and then there, there are some ways in which it's over, like, you know, the pushing of Amy Comey Barrett into the Supreme Court. That was very over. And like, there are some parts of the movement that are very over, but like a lot of it is behind the scenes sort of movement. Um, and, you know, like specifically the the behind the scenes movement um, and battle with abortion. Like, I feel like a lot of that's not talked about on the governmental level because they're trying to do it behind the scenes so that all of a sudden we wake up one day and something has changed, you know? Um, so it's sort of scary to think about, but I don't know if you both have like, like agree with that or see that as like sort of a trend today, but, um, I've sort of like caught on to it. hundred percent. I think that again, it goes back to that idea of what Sam said before about the majority, because we've seen in every election since, um, 1996 even, or actually 92 even with um, Bill Clinton's first election. Since then, um, the Republicans only won the majority 
popular vote one time, and that was in 2004. Otherwise, they lost the majority vote in 2000 and 2016, and yet still won the White House from the Electoral College, which that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But <laughs> point being is it proves they're not the majority, even though Donald Trump pushes this idea of we're the silent majority, when in fact, I believe they're more the loud minority. <laughs> Again, another conversation. But it just goes to that idea that because they're not the majority, there's these people, this minority group of these conservative people who try to push away that idea of what Katie was saying about this feminist ideas, about body rights. Like there was like the like Roe v. Wade, for example, was such a huge win for women. And yet there's people slowly but surely trying to chip away at Roe v. Wade. Like we saw laws being passed in specific states that go against Roe v. Wade. And yet the government did nothing about it to stop those states from preventing it. I believe Ohio was one of them. I think that's the most prominent one I can think of. Um, and I believe another state did it as well, but it just shows that there's this minority group of people trying to control the majority group because the majority of Americans seem to not want these ideals anymore based on just who they voted for in these previous elections. They vote like they voted for Hillary Clinton. They tried to break that glass ceiling of a woman being president. And this time we broke a glass ceiling of a woman being vice president, which is huge. And like, um, Kamala Harris said, like, I may be the first, but I won't be the last. And she definitely won't be the last. But it's just crazy how it took a hundred years from women gaining the right to vote till this point in time for a woman to be elected into that high of an office. Like that should have been done so long ago, I feel. And it just shows that there's this idea of these people think they're the majority, but they're not the majority anymore. And it's people clinging on to the 50s as part of their past because they think as what Trump pushes, that's when America was quote unquote great. But really was it? <laughs> like, I, I don't think the 1950s was the golden age of America. If that's what they wanted to be, it might've been the golden age of Hollywood cinema. <laughs> on that, I don't think it was really the golden age of anything. So I think that's just kind of my perspective of it as they are not the majority and haven't been since the 80s, really. Yeah, that's very true. And um, to kind of build on what we've been talking about the past couple of times, a couple of passes, um, with, you know, not having, the, not having the majority and not having, you know, talking about debates, I want to just kind of zero in on 2016 for a second, because, you know, obviously Donald Trump has, has not made it, has not made it, you know, a quiet, a quiet fact that he uh, is sexist, and you know wh whether it was on the tour, uh, on the, I am tired. Whether it was on the campaign when you know he said some disgusting things to Megyn Kelly, which we don't really need to you know say again, or you know obviously we all remember the uh, Access Hollywood tapes. Or, you know, going back to the, the debates, you know, we had Mike Pence talking over Kamala Harris, you know, and that was, that was one thing, you know, that was, you know, definitely sexist in its own right. But I don't know if you guys remember, I think it was the second presidential debate, where it was a town hall, and Donald Trump is physically looming over Hillary, like he's like standing behind her, just like physically, the man is 6'2", like, you know. 
He's a tall guy. I don't know how tall Hillary is because he's not 6'2". And that image is used to cater to that, that you know, I'm going to use, I like loud minority. I'm going to use that to cater to that loud minority that, oh, this man is, you know, being dominant against this, you know, shorter statured woman. And he is powerful. It's really sad that that image probably gained millions of votes for Trump. It's it's even like to give perspective on that specific like image, like from a woman's perspective, like when when there is like a presence of a man and like they're like not in your like visual like area like if you can't see them they're just sort of like out of your vision but like you can like feel their presence like as a woman like speaking as a woman that is one of the most intimidating things ever and it's 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 very much a feeling like i don't know if like this is like what you know hillary had felt and like i'm not here to say like what hillary like would feel but i feel like a lot of women who are listening would probably think well like that would trigger like a fighter like a flight or flight fight or flight wow i'm can't I can't talk either apparently today um but but that is like such an instance where you know it brings about this image of you know dominance like catering to that to that minority of you know I whoever is in that you know demographic but you know it it triggers feelings of you know power from them but like if women were looking at that like well that's really scary like that, I would think most women, you know, would also like agree. Like that's like a very scary image. Like that probably also hindered her performance. It was a tactic to to make her perform, you know, at a lower rate. And I don't, I don't remember specifically like what happened after that debate. And I, and I, you know, I don't remember what was specifically said. But like, even if she had like still performed just as well, like the amount of effort that that would have taken because of the amount of intimidation he placed on her, like. Now we're getting into a tangent, but I just wanted to add like that level of that's like intimidating as all, you know, as anything. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, to kind of add to the, I know we're really going far on the 2016 thing, but I think it's important um, to kind of add to just the whole Hillary thing. There is a huge double standard with how that uh, entire election was perceived. Because I remember one of the big, you know, one of the big Trump talking points just in, in and, and Trump's talking points in 2016 were almost all anti-Hillary instead of pro-Trump because he doesn't really have a platform. But one of his big talking points was, you know, Bill Clinton. I think, I think you know, they talk about Bill all the time. They brought the four, the four women that Bill has, you know, allegations against. Um, they brought them into the crowd. They were like, you know, the... And, and Bill really became the focal point for Hillary's campaign or Trump's campaign against Hillary. And this is a man that has cheated. I'm talking about Trump, a man who has cheated on his wife multiple times, a man who has, you know, what is it? Oh, it's like 26 sexual assault allegations currently. At the time, I think it was under 20, but one is enough. Um, <laughs> But like, you know, this is a man who his moral character shouldn't even be debated. Like, not a good guy. And then he has the gall to 
bring up another man, not the person he's running against, but another man who, again, another person whose moral character should not be debated. You know, both of them are bad people. <laughs> but Trump uses someone else to talk about Hillary's viability and then completely ignores the fact that his own moral character is significantly worse. Uh, and again, people voted for him. So, you know, it's that loud minority was a majority in 2016. Well, not a, not a majority, but an electoral majority in 2016. Absolutely. I think that it, that's so true. Like, everything about, um, you know, Trump's targeting and Trump supporters' targets of the Democratic campaign in 2016 was just all anti-Hillary, anti-Hillary. Um, they never even made comments on any of the things she said. Like, she could have said anything. She literally could have said anything, and they wouldn't even have said anything about what she said. It's just about who she is. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yes, I mean, one can make the argument they did it in 2022 with Joe Biden, like bringing up Hunter Biden as being something against Joe Biden. But we don't even see it nearly as much as we did with Hillary Clinton, like pushing it with her emails, her emails, her emails, her emails. It's like, how many times did we have to hear that? Like, there has been proof time and time again, her emails had no breach of security. And yet when Trump did have a breach of security, a real one that led to an impeachable offense, as we all see, he says it wasn't real. It wasn't real. That wasn't like he makes it like he was innocent this whole time. It's like, I don't think you were, though. So it's just really is so interesting how, yes, they did it in 2020, but not nearly as much as 2016 because it was all against Hillary. It was all this. We don't want a woman to be our president. And that led to a lot of people, in my opinion, not voting for Hillary, not voting in the election at all, because some people just didn't have the courage to stand up and say, I'm, I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. I know a lot of people who, when they said it, were like, why? Why would you vote for her? She's a woman. Because she's the better person for the job. That's as simple as it is. I, I think that, you know, just to add on to that and then sort of transition into like very, very present day. Um, but adding on to that, this idea that that Trump nailed Hillary for all of these emails. The one, one thing, one thing that Hillary did wrong, there is this perception, especially of women in leadership, that that there is this pressure that women place on themselves as well but it's placed on them by by men so this idea that women are not allowed to make mistakes in in their area of work um it's it's just so it's such a heavy pressure because it's this unspoken expectation that women cannot make mistakes and women have to be perfect in order to succeed um and so something something that we're that we're specifically seeing today is there are a lot of women considering leaving the workplace because of COVID-19 and the pressures that the pandemic has, has placed on, on women in particular. Um, so I, I have some stats on this and we can definitely get into it. Um, but as a result of the pandemic, one in four women, one in four, which is a huge statistic, like it's, it's crazy. One in four women are contemplating um, what many of them wouldn't have contemplated before the pandemic, what, but they're essentially thinking about downshifting their careers or leaving the workplace. And to sort of put some context into, um, into the statistic, um, we have this graph. I don't know if it's going to be added to our Instagram post or not, but it's this graph about... 
Okay, cool. Um, it's this graph about um, representation of court um, of like in a corporate field um, by gender and race. And so essentially like what we see is, you know, it spans from entry level to C-suite, which is the highest amount of um, leadership that you can have in a corporate, you know, or any, you know, type of realm. And so we see that the most disparity um, with, you know, statistics, white men, there's 35% in the entry level, you know, specialty. And then there's 66% of white men in that highest level that there can be in that C-suite. So we see this increase of like 30% between entry level and C-suite. Like there's a huge like disparity in those statistics and the fact that it's like the amount of men in entry level is kind of a minority and the amount of men in, you know, C-suite is the majority. And then, you know, sort of to sort of to like juxtapose against those statistics is women of color is it, it's these statistics are even more you know scary and daunting there's 18 percent of of women in um of women in, of color in entry level but then it jumps down to three percent in that highest level um, of C-suite. And the fact that that 18% isn't a big number to begin with, and this is sort of like a, a, a fact that we haven't spoken to it like really at all as a society, this idea that, you know, people are saying, well, like women are equal and all of that, but you know, this idea, like the white woman statistic, like doesn't really change at all. Um, and it, you know, it does by 10%, but they, they start off an entry level um, at like 10% higher of a rate. And, you know, the amount of women in, um, of white women in C-suite is 19% compared to women of color at 3%. Um, so, so we're talking about numbers that are already low to begin with, and then added on to this idea that one in four are considering dropping out. One in four of that, like, 40% of women in entry-level positions, like, that, that is insane to me. Um, you know, and sort of connecting it back to this inability, um, of women to feel like they can make mistakes, and, like, not saying that, that women, you know, women should be encouraged to make some sort of mistakes, maybe not 24-7, like, they should still be good at their job, but they should be allowed to make mistakes every now and again. A lot of women are considering leaving because of either, like, a lack of flexibility at work, um, feeling like they need to be available at work for all hours of the day, you know, feeling like they always need to be on call. Like I can speak for my mom, like she's always on call for whatever job she's doing. My mom works multiple jobs. Um, she's a superhero, um, but she always is like on call for everything. So like I can speak to that being true. Um, the, you know, additional housework and caregiving burdens that COVID-19 has like exacerbated many many children are, are learning from home so that adds like a different level and then um you know a big one that i think is really huge to talk about is discomfort with sharing the challenges that they're facing with with either their you know co-workers or managers um because of this lack of understanding because a lot of people that they work with may not be women you know if we're speaking to this you know low, low, low amounts of women in entry-level positions, they don't really have other women to necessarily turn to. Um, so, so those stats are really, you know, scary to think about. I want to, I, I want to get your perspectives on what you sort of think about that. So I'm going to go a little bit on a tangent here, um, because I, 
have a little bit of a problem with how politicians use statistics. Now, looking at this graph, this graph is, you know, it, this graph is really sad because of all the reasons that you've been talking about with the fact that, you know, 3% of women of color are in the C-suite. But if you look down on this graph to percent change, which is, you know, a stat that I've heard plenty of times from politicians from both sides of the aisle, percent change, if you look at senior vice president and C-suite, you see 18% change and 22% change positively from 2015 to 2020, which when said by a nice shiny politician sounds great. Like, wow, there has been a positive 22% change. Yeah, well, that means it went from 0.1% to 3%. That's so great. Oh, my God. Like, you know, and this is like, it's the thing that really annoys me with the fact that, like, you know, with with numbers, you can basically fake any progress you want. You can make any progress sound really, really good with the right numbers. And I think this this chart is, does a really good job at showing the full truth in the fact that, you know, that percentage, like, that's not really anything to write home about if you see what, you know, the pipeline at the top. But if you just see that number of, wow, in the last five years, you know, C-suite percentages of, of women has gone up by 22%, like, that's amazing. But then you see what it actually means and you're like, okay. okay. And I think, you know, pulling it back to that, Pence Kamala debate. If you look at what Mike Pence said, all of his stats were percentages because percentages are really, really good at you know making people hear something that they think is great and then they realize if you actually look it up that it's not really that great. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was just watching a uh, colloquia for school earlier this um, year. And I watched um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg speak about women in the workplace as, you know, as she rightfully should, since she did so much for women in the workplace, so much of breaking barriers. And when she was talking, it was crazy to think that at the time when she entered into law school, she said women had really three jobs set out for them. Well, fourth, if you count, you know, stay at home mom as a job, um, which many do and should, because it is a job in itself. Um, but you know, she counted women were teachers, they were nurses, or they were secretaries. And that was the path set out for you. You pick one of those three, or you stay at home. There's nothing else you can do. But, you know, RBG, of course, being RBG, really, you know, stuck it to the man there, literally, and, you know, finished law school. She became an, a very prominent, important lawyer, important judge later on, and became, you know, part of the Supreme Court, the highest place you can go in law so it's just incredible how she was able to do that and but we still see to this day that just because one person did it doesn't mean all people can do it because of the barriers set up for them and it's just so disheartening to see that of these results like three percent of women of color are at the top and and even only 19 percent of white women and it's just because of that stigma of even that idea of just the um, of women's natural body processes, like getting pregnant, people don't want to hire women in high positions because there's going to come a point they feel where they're going to want to have children as they should want to have children. People like children <laughs> and, you know, and it becomes that point of, well, what do we do when she's on maternity leave? 
what do we do when, when she has when she has the baby? Like, what do you mean, what do you do? She's still the most qualified for that job. But that's not talked about from the male perspective because, well, you know, cis men can't get pregnant, obviously. So it, it just becomes that idea of there's so many like natural factors that like they use against women, like their own nat natural like body processes. Like they even use hormones as an example, saying, oh, women are too hormonal, they're too emotional to do things such as like what RBG was as a judge. People think women are too emotional for that. They're going to get too attached to their cases. Even as doctors, I think, oh, women are going to get way too attached to their patients and things like that. And they're like, uh, it's, and that's not at all true because women can be just, I mean, we see people like, not to really bring Britain into this, but like someone like Margaret Thatcher, for example, known as like the Iron Lady. Like she didn't stand down to people and, you know, obviously her politics are something that could be agreed or disagreed with more or less, <laughs> maybe not be the best, but it just proves that women have that ability to not be emotional. And there's plenty of men who are emotional. So it just really proves right there that people use own biological functions or claims of biology even to go against women in the workforce and that's so sad to see and these stats just show it show it right clear as day yeah building on the uh the margaret thatcher point i think you know covid has given us two you know really really i mean obviously more than two but two great examples obviously one of them way before covid but but you know still chugging along angela merkel who has just been you know this shining star in europe for almost 20 years now and then people have been talking about, rightfully so, for the majority of this pandemic, Jacinda Ardern in uh, New, uh, New Zealand, who even before COVID had some really, really great policies, you know, with gun control. And, you know, those are two, you know, women in the highest, the highest position of their country doing the job pretty much inarguably better than the men that are currently doing the same job in other countries. You know, we've got Trump and Boris Johnson, and Vladimir Putin, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on. There's 196 countries in the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree, Nick, that, that people use, um, biological differences to to target um many women and i think that it's just such a double standard like we even like in the media not not in the media or like in advertising or whatever in sales in marketing and profit all of that um the the amount you know for example i don't want to get too off topic but the amount of menstrual products cost compared to like access to viagra like something that's like really like like something they they deem like men's products like like men's sexual health products as you know a necessity for men and it's not like that much of a price point but if you ask me like menstrual products are more of a necessity than viagra like i'm sorry like i don't want to get too awkward or anything but that's like one of like the examples not like outside of the workplace it's no, like women's women's health, for example, just isn't as much of a priority as men's health. And they use that to to work against women. Like they're using they're using this biological like health like differences to to say women like you don't belong in this workplace. And then they're perpetuating it by making access to health 
you know, like just inaccessible. Um, so it's, it's so many like components that just like work together that we just need to like be better in. Um, and, you know, especially like what we're speaking to with, with women in other countries and how they're being, you know, so, so powerful and they're, they're making really influential change. It's where like you, the U S often is like, we're the leading country in the world, but what, like, what do we have going, going for us from 2016 to 2020? Like, that's what I really want to know. Um, so not to get too off topic, but like, I definitely agree that they use biological differences and then they use access to other, you know, things to perpetuate that. So. I just want to play a little game with you guys. So to get back to the Viagra question, I, I when you said it, I had to look this up because I knew this stat was insane. To get back to the Viagra question, how much money annually does the U.S. military spend on Viagra alone? <laughs> wow, I, it's it's got to be over a million for some reason. I just have a feeling. It's, it's I'll say seven million. I'm gonna say seven million. Katie's got seven million locked in. Nick, do you agree? Yeah, I'd say seven's actually a seven million is a pretty good number to me. <laughs> According to the Washington Post in 2017. The U.S. military spends $41.6 million annually on Viagra alone. And this is roughly five times the estimated spending on transition-related medical care for transgender troops, which obviously this was written when Trump decided to ban trans people from the army. So, yeah, that's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're up against here. $41.6 million in spending just for Viagra. Not for weapons, not for that's that's the US military for you. Um yeah. <laughs> that's insane. That's like almost five times more, like I don't even know. Like it's just it's more than five times more what we we guessed. That's wow. crazy. That's such a that's such a crazy stat, like especially with Trump, like you said with the transgender military ban, like saying, Oh my gosh, their 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 hormones cost so much money to get these supplements. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But yet this one pill for something that's not even necessary technically to be a part of the military, literally. <laughs> yeah, you, I don't think I don't think the enemy is like, oh, but like <laughs> No, it, that's crazy. It's nuts. Yeah, uh, it's, that's, it's, that's a double standard for you. That's that's such a double standard. And again, it's nuts because like people use this as an excuse that to keep women out of the workplace well you you have these health problems well make make women's health care better like if we wouldn't have we wouldn't have this issue if our health care was better if our access to reproductive health particularly was better like and you know this is sort of again not to get too off topic but something that infuriates me is that they're trying to make it worse they're trying to make access to reproductive health worse and so now we're going to even see like you know, we're already talking about one in four women leaving because of COVID-19. Like, what is that going to do for their access to healthcare? Like, what is, like, it's just so, so daunting and scary to think about as a woman in particular. But um, even I'm sure you both are just sitting here like, wow, like, why is this happening? Like, why are we allowing this to happen again? Um, it's definitely, you know, 
I think that sometimes like we see like lapse in time where we're like, okay, like women are doing like well and it's perceived that they're doing well. And then we return to the conversation. We're like, they're not doing as well as we thought they were. And that's not, that's not a reflection of women's work or women's, you know, lack of trying. It's, it's just the way the system has been designed to work. Um, and we see that outside of, you know, the, the sphere of women in general, it's, it's any minority group in America. It's just the way the system was built to work against them. So it's, we have a I'm lot referring of to women as a minority group. Like that's it's, like, that's, that's the funniest part. It's They're the, not. Yeah, it's not. We're literally half the population. Okay. Well, I'm getting More really than worked half the up. Population. Oh, I'm getting really worked up. We are literally <laughs> not a minority in number. We are not. But like the fact that we, the fact that like it's referred to as a minority when it's not even a minority in number and it's not a minority in number it's just a minority in perception you know mm -hmm. it's you know the way it's, and, and treatment perception and treatment um you know the yeah the fact that like we're not even a minority we're not allowed like majority we're not you know the loud majority is controlling these people who are you know perceived to be a minority but they're not a minority it's my brain sorry yeah. i got really worked up <laughs> No worries, you're 100% entitled to get as worked up as you want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, you guys have anything else to say? I think I think we've covered a lot. Yeah, I think for sure. I think the 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 only other thing I guess I'll mention really quick because um I know Katie mentioned it kind of earlier before starting about women in STEM, for example. I don't know if either of you have ever heard of the uh, the Scully effect, um, but if any of you have ever watched the X-Files, I know I'm kind of a nerd with stuff like that. But, um, you know, this character, Dana Scully, uh, portrayed by Gillian Anderson, um, because of her role in the show, a lot more women they felt who um, were fans of the X-Files went into uh, fields in STEM as a result of Dana Scully. And I find that super interesting how even a fictional character can really push people to want to achieve more, to want to do more. And I think we see that in reality, too. Like... Someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg wants people to achieve more and do more. Susan B. Anthony, Rosa Parks, all these famous women we know from history who did things to help change their society and help change things for whether it be voting rights or civil rights, or if that's the right of women in STEM. I think it's just crazy, like both fictional and real women do this on a daily basis. And some of them don't even try. Like that was never Gillian Anderson's intent in taking that role of Dana Scully. That was just on oh, playing another role on a TV show. And yet she jump started this whole big movement of women in STEM. And I think that's so interesting to me. Yeah, I think that, that there's definitely an opportunity for women to grow in other fields. Um, you know, sort of Nick, as you said earlier, the three main fields that people tend to gravitate or women tended to gravitate to. Like, I still think today we see a lot of women in those particular three fields. Um, and it's not necessarily because, you know, they, I don't, I don't want to like assume, but maybe it, I don't want to assume that like they don't want to be there, but maybe it was because they weren't given the opportunity or they weren't given the amount of encouragement from other people to enter that, um, enter those areas. So there's definitely room as well to, to look at where women are in the workplace and how, how do we actively encourage them to to go into other fields it, it starts as early as high school you know it starts as early as k through 12 education and the amount of guidance and the amount of you know encouragement that that we see you know it, it comes from the advisors that you know 
advise you. It's not only women, but it's also people of color are turned away from, you know, STEM people in the BIPOC community are turned away from certain, you know, fields because they, you know, people doubt their abilities and, you know, their, um, their sort of drive to get there, but that's not based on any fact that's based on preconceived notions of those people. So I definitely think that that a good step or a huge, a huge step is to look at how people are advised in like career, um, you know, aspirations, especially women um, and especially people in the BIPOC communities. Um, I don't think that like maybe, you know, higher levels of advising would, you know, help cis white men too, but I don't know if that, you know, if they need that much more help, you know, getting where they need to be, frankly. But, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. So thank you guys so much. Uh, you know, thanks for, thanks to, yeah, thank you to everyone for listening. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye.